text this morning comes from Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 12 through 17. Uh, if you have a copy of the scripture with you, uh, you meant to turn there. If you do not, the blue book in, your, uh, in front of the pew in front of you looks like this. Uh, you can find it on uh, page 984. In Colossians 3, 12 through 17, I invite you to give ear for this is God's word. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me, uh, let me pray for us once more as we... Come to God's Word. Father, we are thankful that we, uh, we don't come to Your Word alone. Uh, we come together, we come and dwelt uh, by Your Holy Spirit. And you promise uh, to accomplish the purposes for Your Word in our lives. Uh, we thank You that it is not just me speaking here. Uh, it is uh, the very power of God that is at work in and through Your Word with your spirit. And we take comfort in that this morning and we pray that we would come to know your son Jesus more. We pray that uh, we would see him to be more beautiful and more believable to us. We pray that we would cling to him this morning. We would rejoice in all that he is for us and all that uh, he has done for us as well. And it is in his name that we pray and for his glory. Amen. Uh, One of the most frightening books that I've ever read uh, it's called The Hot Zone, and it's uh, by a guy named Richard Preston. It's just, to, to, just to tell you how scary this is, there's a little blurb on the back from Stephen King, and he says, one of the most horrifying things I've ever read. <laughs> so you, you're, in the, you're on the right track if you have Stephen King saying that about it. Uh, the reason this is so frightening is that it is a true account of the outbreak of the Ebola virus and of a few other viruses like it, Uh, all these that began in Central and West Africa in the late 70s and early 80s. And so it's this uh, novel-like account of how that happened and and of how it spread and of how dangerous it is. And so it starts with this guy, uh, this Frenchman who is otherwise healthy, whose name is Charles Monet, and he is living in Kenya. He's involved in a number of wildlife sorts of things happening there. And at one point, he goes on a camping trip with this woman. They visit a place called the Kittim Cave. And this cave is full of these mineralized logs that are very sharp for that reason. And this is a huge, huge cave where entire herds of elephants can go into it in the midst of rainstorms. But it's also full of these bats. And that's where they think Ebola started, was in these bats that were there. And so the details are pretty fuzzy as to exactly what happened. However, 
the theory is that Charles Monet is in this cave that's certain that he was there on this camping trip and that he could have very easily scraped his hand, maybe tripped and fallen over something, cut his hand on one of these very sharp mineralized rocks, these logs, that are also covered with this excrement from these bats that are infected with Ebola. And at that point then, it's likely that he contracted this disease. He leaves the trip, doesn't know what's going on, of course, goes back to work and to his normal life. And here's what Charles Preston says. Meanwhile, something was making copies of itself inside Monet. A life form had acquired Charles Monet as a host, and it was replicating. So seven days after this trip, he gets a bad headache, turns into a really bad backache, and then a fever begins. And then he has all these intestinal problems and things continue to get worse and they get worse. So he goes to a local doctor who says, this is too much for us. We don't know what this is. You need to get on a plane and go to another hospital in Africa. So he gets on this plane and the author describes this picture of being uh, in close quarters on this plane, recirculating air over and over again, and he begins getting sick on the plane. And I have a thing with hand sanitizer that I love, and so this is like freaking me out as I read this. (laughs) And so he's, he's deathly ill. He infects everybody on this plane, then gets to the hospital and is in the waiting room, proceeds to infect everybody there as well. And he ends up dying at this hospital after having spread it all over. And the way this works is that this virus enters your body and starts with these really small, uh, these small symptoms that look flu-like or maybe even like malaria, but then it totally attacks your your internal organs from the inside, and so it kills a person from the inside out. Uh, It's 90% fatal, and there's no known cure for it. So this is one of the most frightening. Uh, viruses that we're aware of. And actually, there's an outbreak occurring right now uh, in Africa, and it's something that we should be praying about. So what's the point? Why why do I start here? Because what Paul does in this section of, of Colossians is set forth what it means to be the body of Christ. Everything in this section is in the plural. So all the you's that you read are actually y'all's here, okay? He's saying this, Christ has died and been raised for you And you, collectively, you, the people of God, have died and been raised with Him. Now, because of that grace that's been shown to you, live in light of that reality. Put on these practices that fit with who you now are in Jesus because of what He's done. Become now a healthy body because of what Christ has done for you. Now, what we need to be aware of in this passage... Uh, is that this body uh, that, that Paul is talking about here can be infected and sickened from the inside out as well. Our body can actually contract some kind of virus that also, like Ebola, can rapidly duplicate itself within the body. And so this one would be also highly contagious. And so what Paul is saying here is that we can become sick if we don't take seriously this call to live in light of the grace that's been shown to us, that a sickness can develop within our body as well. And I know there are plenty of stories in this room of people who have been a part of churches that are sick. And you've been hurt by it. It may be a reason that you either walked away from the faith for a while or were really tempted to do so, and maybe are just barely hanging on right now. 
Um, so I think this is appropriate for us to think about this morning. I also think it's important because um, in our stage of life as a church, we are growing, which is wonderful. Uh, we're talking about planting more church churches, and we're going to do that, and that's exciting. At the same time, in the midst of those sorts of changes, we have more people coming in, more relationships forming, and what that means is that more people get hurt. Um, we bring a set of expectations to what church should be, and if those aren't met, we get frustrated. And, and in the midst of this, there's the potential and the danger that that can become toxic within our body if we don't deal with it as Paul calls us to. So what's Paul's point for us this morning? What's our focus? It's this. Because we belong to Jesus, we must live as a body formed by the gospel. So because we belong to Jesus, we must live as a body formed by the gospel. So what this does is we look to what Jesus has done for us and we need to respond accordingly. That's what we're looking at this morning. So we'll ask and answer this question. What does it look like to live as a body formed by the gospel. And you'll see the outline for you printed in the bulletin. Four points. The first is this. To live as a body formed by the gospel, we must remember whose we are. This section, which is really just three words in verse 12, is the most important part of the entire passage. Notice what he says here. Put on then, that's the command, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, So what Paul does here is he is answering the most important question from the very start. Who are we as a body? Or even better, whose are we as a body? And notice what he says. He says we are God's chosen ones. We need to read that as the recipients of God's affection. This is not some kind of cold election or cold choosing. This is more like an adoption. We are God's chosen ones. He says we are holy. We've been set apart in order to serve God. We've been set apart in that way, and that's what he calls us, that's what he tells us that we are. And then finally, we are beloved. And this is uh, maybe the most beautiful uh, title that could be given to us, that we are loved by God himself. All of these phrases are actually used of Israel, and Paul is intentionally doing that for us because he wants us to see that we now, the church, are the new and true Israel. That we are now this community, as he says in, uh, in verse 11 that Darwin looked at last week, we are now this community made up of both Jew and Gentile, slave and free, of every ethnicity, this bunch of different people that is now the true people of God. And the glorious part of all this, with this title, this status, this, uh, this relationship that's given to us, is that it's completely of grace. And it was like this for Israel as well. And this is, what, uh, this is what Deuteronomy 7 says about this. These are words to Israel, but they could just as easily be words to us. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. That is the reason that those things can be said of us this morning. This is what He says to you and to us, that what defines us 
as the people of God is that we are those whom God loves. It is true for you as an individual. It is true for us as a people. Why is that so important right now? Because what Paul is about to do is to call us to put on all these things. This could be an overwhelming passage if we don't understand these three titles that he gives to us early on. He's about to call us to to love people who are different than us, to love in a costly way. He's saying be compassionate, be kind to people, forgive people uh, that, that have genuinely wronged you. I mean, this is impossible unless we understand the grace that has been shown to us. And here's where the real danger enters. If we don't understand that these commands that are coming to us in this passage come only after that once-for-all unearned grace of Christ's death and resurrection, then that grace of the gospel ceases to be grace. And what occurs at that point is that we fall into what becomes toxic and infectious because it's the belief that our standing before God and His love of you is based on what you do rather than on what Christ has done. And for us to believe that is toxic in our midst. I mean, it's, it's dangerous to us as individuals, but it's dangerous for, a bo- for our body as well. What Paul's logic is, is this. By His grace, God has set His love upon you, united you to Jesus. Everything that Jesus has done is now credited to you. You are united to Him in this living and vital relationship. So live out the reality of that. Um, the, the, the way that it's been said before is that the indicative of the gospel, this declarative statement, what God has done for you, always, always comes before the imperative, which is the command, living in light of this grace that has been shown to us. Now, if we reverse that order, then we are in huge trouble. Because what happens is that self-righteousness arises and self-righteousness will undercut our life as a community. I'm just going to point out two ways that this happens. One is this. People become competitors if self-righteousness is what is occurring in our midst. Why is that so? Because if my worth and value is all wrapped up in what I do, then I need to do that better than you. You become a competitor to me because I want to show myself to achieve some height of holiness, success, righteousness, whatever. So people become competitors and not people that we can love. The other problem is that people become objects of worship for us. And here's what I mean by that. If my life and my standing in this body is all about what I do, then I desperately, desperately want you to notice that and to affirm me in it. And I worship you because you have something that I need, namely your approval. And at that point, I'm no longer loving you. I'm no longer in a healthy relationship with you. I am using you to my own selfish ends. And when that seeps into the life of a community, when it seeps into our body, it becomes toxic for us. That's the danger that we face. That if we forget who and whose we are, it will make us sick. And so the only way to prevent this, and this is what Paul does for us by giving this command, this call up front, is saying, you must remember whose you are. You must remember that and you must live in light of it. We belong to Jesus by grace. It is a gift. It is unearned. And that is the starting point for anything that we will talk about for the rest of the morning. So cling to that. This is the most important part of this whole passage.
Which doesn't mean we can just check out for the rest, by the way. Secondly, to live as a body formed by the gospel, we must put on love. You see this in the the heart of this passage. And that call initially there is to put on, and that can actually be translated, clothe yourselves. So put on these clothes that fit with who you really are now. You've died and been raised with Christ. Now put on these practices or this way of life that fits with who you really are because these clothes or these practices are going to show who you really are. And this is true in a lot of circumstances if you think about this. Uh, This was put on display for me in a significant way when I was unable to go mentor my Kids Hope kid down at Oakmont. We've got a Kids Hope program where we mentor kids down there. And I was unable to meet with my kid that particular day, so I go to the substitute list and uh, see Nick Breedlove's name on there. Like, Nick's going to be perfect. This will be great. So I get a hold of Nick. He goes. He mentors for me when I'm out of town. Then I come back next week to find out that Nick, the naval pilot, wore his Navy flight suit to mentor my Kid Soap Kid, complete with the hat and the aviators. He wears the aviators, too. Um, Two things became apparent. Uh, one was that any chance at all that I had of my Kids Hope kid thinking that I was cool were totally done for. <laughs> I'd been completely scoreboarded by Nick, permanently. <laughs> but a second thing became apparent as well, and that's that that uniform says something of who Nick really is. I mean, he, he is a Navy pilot, a Naval Academy graduate. He's not here this morning, and I told him I was going to do this, so everything's okay. Uh, he, he, he is a naval pilot, and his clothes say so. It fits who he is. This is what he does, and it's who he is. And what Paul is saying here is that because of what Jesus has done for us, we are a different people, and now we should put on those clothes that match who we really are. And the way he summarizes what these clothes are is in verse 14. It says, "...and above all these put on love." which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That may mean that all of these things he said are bound together or summarized in love, or it could even be that this metaphor of clothing is being uh, being put forward as like love being this clasp that binds all of these things together for us. Both things are, are true for us. What does love look like? He gives us an idea here. We'll look just quickly at these five things. He says, compassionate hearts. This is when we see hurting people and we move towards them rather than away from them. It says, put on kindness. Rather than using people as a means to an end, we're to be kind to them. He says, put on humility. Be humble rather than arrogant or narcissistic. Be meek. Be gentle rather than harsh with people. And then finally, he says, be patient with people rather than demanding. And then... Verse 13 works out what these clothes will look like in relationships. And he says two things. By bearing with one another. And secondly, if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. And obviously there are so many things we could say about all of this in this section. I'm going to limit it to two. And one is this. I think it's really important to see that Paul recognizes here that life in this body will inevitably involve conflict with one another. It will involve conflict. And I think that is refreshing and honest, and we have got to to recognize that. 
and temper our expectations accordingly for our life together. There will be conflict. We must bear with somebody. There will come a time where you must forgive someone. We will be wronged by one another. The question becomes, how will we deal with it in that moment? And that's what Paul's getting at here. And that's the second thing I want to point out, is that our forgiveness of others, he says, is connected with the forgiveness that we have received from the Lord. Look at verse 13. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And then he says in verse 15 that we've been called to this peace in one body. And that that peace that's supposed to rule in our hearts is this same peace that Christ has accomplished by His death on the cross. If you remember uh, chapter 1, verse 20, this is the, 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 it was through the blood of the cross that this peace is won. And there are a couple ways that, that there is this connection between our forgiveness of each other and the, connection, or the forgiveness we've received. First, the Lord's forgiveness of us is the pattern of our forgiveness. And this may be the more obvious one. Jesus went to huge lengths, death itself, that sort of cost in order to forgive us. That's the pattern that's put forward for us. And I think the reason uh, that this is helpful is because we see the cost of this sort of forgiveness, and that's the reason that forgiveness becomes so difficult for us. And it also then becomes the reason that failing to forgive could be toxic to our body. It becomes so easy to not extend forgiveness because we've actually been wronged and there's a deep sense of justice within us that thinks, I've been really hurt and this is going to cost me something to forgive this person. It's going to be painful for me to forgive this person and it is a whole lot easier to just nurse a grudge against somebody rather than saying, I have to extend forgiveness here. It's deadly for us. One of the best quotes uh, in this realm is from Anne Lamott. She says, Not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. Did you get that? Like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. And this is what it does in our body as well. It will kill us if we withhold forgiveness from one another. Here's the great thing about this, though. The Lord's forgiveness is not just the pattern for us. It's also the source of our forgiveness. And here's what we need to understand. Unless we understand and believe and taste and experience the forgiveness that we have received from God Himself, there is no way that we can extend that sort of forgiveness to other people. But the glorious thing, though, is that as we sit in that and, and, uh, and bathe in it and meditate on that forgiveness and taste it and experience it, then we actually will become forgiving people to where we can pay that cost and forgive even when we've been wronged in really significant ways. And that's what we've been called to here. It fits with who we are as the body formed by the gospel. Thirdly, he says in verse 16, to live as a body formed by the gospel, we must be indwelt by the word of Christ. Take a look at verse 16. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Uh, Let's look first at this phrase, the word of Christ. That's important for us to understand. We could really summarize that as saying it is the gospel. 
It's both the word about Christ, the word of Christ in that sense, but it's also then the words that Christ has spoken to us. So his person and his work is this word to us here. And so what Paul is saying is let the gospel dwell in you all richly. Let it dwell in you richly. And then he gives this list of what it looks like with these specific call, the, the specific call. And if you look at this as teaching, admonishing, and singing, I mean, we can think of various contexts in which this happens in, in our life as a body where we're taught, we're, we're admonished, and all that. But I think maybe the primary place where this happens is right here on a Sunday morning in the context of our corporate worship together. This is the place where the Word of Christ will dwell in us together richly. And that's what happens when we rehearse the gospel every week. I know we we talk about this relatively often. But the reason that we do what we do in our worship service is that it walks us through the gospel every week. And so there are these elements of teaching where our minds are being reshaped and reformed so that we can see the world as we're supposed to, so we can see ourselves as we're supposed to see ourselves, and then to see how the gospel applies to all of our life. We're admonished every week. There there are ways in which uh, what we hear convicts us, and we realize that we, we do need to change in particular ways, and we have blind spots exposed and rough edges smoothed out by the grace of God. And then singing as well. Uh, This is probably another way that we teach and admonish. But what I want you to see is that Paul actually talks about singing to each other in this context. We're singing to each other these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, reminding one another of the truth of the gospel. Because we are so prone to forget it, and we are so prone to live by another story. So the big point here is that worship for us is formative. This is where Jesus forms us more into a community that is shaped by this gospel because it teaches our hearts. It trains our hearts to love certain things. And that's what we're doing in this time. Why is this so important? It's important because we are constantly being bombarded with other stories that that we are tempted to live by. Other stories that would tell us who we are, other stories that would tell us what the world is all about and what matters, uh, and, and that would eventually actually make us love other things. Stories that make us view the world differently than it really is. Uh, great movie from a number of years back called A Beautiful Mind. I'm sure many saw it with Russell Crowe. Um, it's about the economist Ron Nash. And this guy was a genius mathematician. He's studying mathematics at MIT, He's eventually appointed to a faculty position there. And during his time there, he's approached from from these representatives from the Pentagon who ask him to help begin cracking these encrypted codes of communication from the Soviets. And so he gets into this espionage uh, and he's he's tasked with, with breaking these codes and things begin to heat up as he gets more and more involved with what's happening. And he eventually witnesses this shootout between these Soviets and these Americans, and he starts freaking out because of the danger that is there for him. And so he tries to get out of this job. His boss blackmails him and keeps him in this position, and he eventually has this mental breakdown and ends up in a psychiatric facility. And it's only at this point in the movie when we, the audience, realize that none of those things are actually real. 
And he finds out in this moment that he's actually suffering from paranoid schizophrenia and that he has been living this story that was not real and it had been dictating his entire life. It was all made up. It was all in his head. He was living by a story that was not real. And that is something of what happens to you and me when we cease to live by the story of the gospel, when we are defined by some other story. There are lots of examples of what this could be. It could just be that true happiness is found in the most amount of money and toys that you can acquire. And we suddenly start to live by that story and believe that's what's going to happen. It could be that Christianity is actually just for those who have neat and tidy lives, who have well-behaved kids, are married, uh, have successful careers, and no major outward struggles. I actually think that's a story that's relatively prominent in our area as to what Christianity is. That's not the gospel. The gospel says that we are a needy people who have been loved with so great a love that we can actually give ourselves away. That is the story that we must live by. That is what will shape us and form us into this sort of community. So worship reminds us of this and forms us in this way. Fourthly and finally, to live as a body formed by the gospel, we must faithfully represent Jesus. And this is this last verse. Look at verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the summary of this whole passage. Do everything, whether word or indeed, in the name of the Lord Jesus. And what's important for us to recognize here is that that term name, or that Paul would use that term name in the name of the Lord Jesus, is significant for us. Because in the ancient world, this would have been a huge deal because your actions would represent the one in whose name you are acting. We are called to be representatives of Jesus in this way. And one commentator says that there's really an outward focus to this. Do everything in word or in deed. He's talked about what it's like to be in this community. Now, outside the walls of this place, do everything in the name of Jesus. Represent Him to the world. Show Him to the world. As a body, show the world what Jesus is like. What might that look like? Well, it could look like this, hurting, messed up, despised, immoral, unlovely, outcast people being drawn to us because of the great compassion that we would have. That was what it looked like for Jesus. Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because of the sort of people he spent time with, because of the grace that those people felt and experienced by him. He showed mercy. He had strong words for religious leaders who misunderstood this and were hypocritical in the way that they would extend grace and mercy. Is this us? Is this what our body is like? Could this be what our body is like by God's grace? Because this is what we're called to, to represent Christ to the world. And the possible infection that we've got to fight is misrepresenting Him. We've got to fight that. So let me state this positively. I want you just to think about the beauty, the compelling, moving beauty of a body that represents Jesus in that way. People will notice that sort of love and grace and compassion. Our neighbors will notice that. Our community will. 
our co-workers, our friends, people will notice that sort of love. And he says all of this will be characterized by gratitude. He says it three times in this passage. We are to be a grateful people throughout. People will notice that. As I said um, of Ebola at the beginning, uh, one of the most frightening things about this is that there is not a cure. Uh, The only way that they deal with this uh, is that they quarantine those who have been infected and wait for it to run its course. And there's a 90% fatality rate, and it's heartbreaking. I actually looked, I think it was last night, and there there were, I think, 151 confirmed uh, cases right now in Africa. So the danger of of infection for us is real. Uh, And I want us to take that seriously. I've tried to emphasize that. But what's incredible about this is that there is a cure for all of these things that we are fearful of and that we are fighting against within our own body. And the cure is Jesus himself. Because this is his body. And apart from him and his sustaining grace in our midst, we, I, can make a mess of things. But he promises to be with us, to sustain us, and to continue to extend his grace towards us. He will complete the work that He's begun in us. He will enable us to put on these clothes that fit who we really are now by His grace. He promises to do that in our midst. Let me pray for us and ask Him to do that in our midst. Father, Your Word calls us to much in this passage. But we thank You that It does not come to us in a vacuum. It comes to us clothed in the grace of the gospel, in the unearned grace that comes to us because of what Jesus has done for us in His death and resurrection. And we pray that He would continue His work in our midst and that we would live as those who belong to Him and that we would experience the work of His Spirit in us, making us more and more into a community that shows forth who You are. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.